0: It's time to listen to The Career Bitches with Anne and Marcel. They cut through the bullshit and all the workplace drama. Now give it up for these moms. Yeah,
1: yeah, 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 yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, welcome back to Career Bitches. And you need to introduce yourself
1: so we don't get in trouble with our producer
2: it's true so I'm Anne Tropea I am half of the amazing duo that is career bitches and I am Marcel Yeager the
1: other half and I will say people recently it's funny but a couple of people have said oh I need to talk to that career bitch because they've needed advice (laughs) about their next job like friends of mine now they just call me that which is not exactly what we intended but sure why not I'll take it
2: oh yeah I'll take it that's awesome (laughs)
1: <laughs> so today we are super excited because we have a very special guest ryan shea ryan welcome to career Bitches.
0: oh thank you thank you both it is exciting to be here and to be uh, a memorial or emeritus advent or on to the the career Bitches. some sort of honorary member perhaps is a better way of saying that but uh, it's delighted sure. to be here and for your for your listeners i'm a, a director of government relations and regulatory affairs it's a law firm here in dc and i'm in their consulting and lobbying practice, but have been in in and around government uh, for the better part of a decade. And so happy to, to be here and contribute however I can. Thank cool.
1: you so much for being here. Um, and we're going to ask you some hard questions in a little bit, but let's first go through, <laughs> through our weekly <laughs> bitch. Um, I don't, I guess I used the term authentic self in the last podcast and Anne caught me in listening to the recording and ask me why I don't like that term. So we're going to discuss.
2: (laughs) Maybe it's like overplayed at this point, but I feel like in past seasons we've talked or like we've had guests on and we've used the phrase authentic self, um, in the context of, you know, you're supposed to bring your authentic self to work, um, like a buddy, I guess, um, like the stuffed animal. I don't know. Like, I don't know how, I don't know what that means to bring your authentic self, honestly. So maybe that's, maybe the phrasing is weird, but I was editing last, uh, last week's episode and Marcel, you kind of like, you kind of went off on that term and you're like, I don't like that. (laughs) And I've literally used that, um, Like in real, like not ironically, but like in real conversation. So I just thought we should talk about it. Let's think about like, is there a better way to say that? Because I like the idea behind Mm -hmm. like being real at work and and not like putting on some kind of like fake persona at work, which I hate as all of you know. So maybe there's just a better way to say it. That's like less like, I don't know, like internet spam. I don't know. It's got like, that's, it's, maybe it's just too, it's been used too much.
1: Maybe you just hit the nail on the head saying, bring your authentic self to work. I, maybe that's what bothers me. Because to me, it's just like, bring you to work or bring yourself to work. Right? Why do we need yeah. the word authentic? Because you should just be yourself, which I know, as you said, is hard for a lot of people, unfortunately. But I think in the past few years, that's kind of what we've learned too, is right, right. You can't separate life from work very easily anymore even though Mm -hmm. we try and so I think yeah you just bring your real self to work but do we need another word attached to it I don't know
2: I don't know how about just like uh, I don't know I don't know I just I I know in some jobs that's that's kind of like not a thing like you have to be someone else to be at work because it's just like the nature of that type of role you know, you're supposed to be invisible. You're supposed to be, uh, I don't like that. I mean, those are jobs. Those are not jobs that I would do. And I guess if you're an actor, like you're not bringing your authentic self to work. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of, um, a silly phrase, but
1: you're right. It's true. And I feel like actually, because both of you are, um, for very familiar with the legal profession and I did that early in my career and then walked away, (laughs) but I would say, yeah, I mean that might be one too, right. Where you, you can't always (laughs) be yourself. Yeah. So maybe it's more about bringing your, not being afraid to put things out there that are important to you. I don't know how to say like, to not try to hide things. If you have things going on, maybe you don't blast it to the whole law firm or the whole company or your department. But um, in fact, somebody I just talked to today said that they said it's such a shame that so little attention is paid to the fact that people go through things and go through traumas and then Mm -hmm. still have to focus and have a career and a job. And I think that's very important and we do need to think about that cuz everyone was like you know covid had all these effects but there's a lot of other things going on in everybody's lives and we still need to be aware of that and i think if leaders don't ever hear about what's going on then you can't really be you at work
2: right yeah and i to. think people need to ask like they people should give a shit about the people that they're working with also and like i would want to know if i you know if i was working with someone and like maybe they're having a hard time. They don't have to tell me why, but it would be nice for them to say like hey, like I'm really struggling this week, so you know, I my attention might not be where it normally is. Like I would rather just know that someone is struggling so that I can like do my best to support them in any way that I can. But you can't do that. You don't know you don't necessarily know people are having a hard time unless they say it. And it's it's not always that easy to ask either. Cause it's, it can be a little awkward to be like, Hey, you seem like you're in a really bad mood. Like it's, you want to talk? <laughs> I mean, I would ask that, but, but that's me. And that's not, that's not, that's not everybody. So.
1: No, most people are uncomfortable doing that for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we could go on for a long time about this, yes. but Ryan has a lot of knowledge and so we're going to pick his brain. But before we get into some of the hot topics of the day, Uh, in terms of government affairs. um, I would love to hear your perspective on how people can get in and then kind of like grow Mm
2: -hmm. in
1: terms of a trajectory within either. And I guess it could be two ways, right? Like maybe it's actually on Capitol Hill working within Congress and maybe even outside, like for consulting firms or um, in public affairs in some sense, right? Because there's so much in D.C. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, happy to to weigh in on that. I mean, Congress is, it's one building, but it's really 535 little small businesses is the best <laughs> way that I talk about it, right? Is that there isn't a central HR department that you can just put your resume in and get assigned an office. You really have to target offices individually, like their own small medium-sized firm that you're wanting to get employed by. And a lot of that is based on geography. So you often will get a start from your local member in the house or your local Senator. And that's what I did. It's extremely common. I started off with uh, Senator Patty Murray and Senator Marie Catwell from Washington State where I'm from. So often folks first need to look to who they're represented by or adjacent to. Second area is where you have affiliations. So in large part, that's your school, undergraduate or graduate or faith tradition or sport or something, any element of commonality, right, that puts you in a camp that immediately marks you valid or legitimate in the eyes of folks that are, you know, in their 20s and determining who gets these jobs, <laughs> right? And so that's because like Congress is just not a monolith. It, it, it's just not. And in the consulting world, in large part, to to start off in there, you need at least some type of Hill experience, at least if you're lobbying... The hill if you're consulting for you know a federal agency if you're like at a Deloitte or something certainly you don't need hill experience but in large part getting some tread on the tires up there on the hill before going into the consultant space does make sense I know folks that have gone in immediately into the consultant world and gotten a lot of very specific issue area expertise and then have gone on to the hill working for a member that they're they have no connection to, like they're not from the state or something, but they're hired on because of particular committee assignment or something. So that's another way to get in that can take a little bit longer. And you're very much subject to the whims of who's in the majority, who has money, who's on this committee or, or that committee. Uh, but the more traditional way is to start at the low end of the total pole like I did uh, based on, you know, having sort of geographic or parochial connections, and then working your way up from there. And then the fundamental challenge is then staying in it. Uh, You can have elections, people lose their jobs, people resign, people die, right? I mean, that's what's different about working for Congress is that you're not working for an institution, you're working for a person. And that person can stay, not stay, you have no control over that. And if they're gone, you don't have a job. So getting in is one challenge and staying in is another
1: That's so important. And actually, as you were talking, I was just, I'm so glad you said that because I was going to ask you a question about that because there is so much uncertainty in that career, just like there is, you know, like in my life with the foreign service. Um, How do you, like, what do you think are the most important characteristics or skill sets that people have? Because obviously you'd have to be very flexible, right? Is one I'm sure. But what other ones would you say people have to have?
0: I think- Always willing to do whatever task is assigned to you, whether you think it's below you or above you, and having a value add mindset, right? Like if you're if you have you know an undergraduate degree and a graduate degree, and you're writing a constituent letter and you're grumpy about it, it's unlikely your career is going to blossom in that office, right? But if you're if you're willing to do you know the other the phrase is other duties as assigned is often <laughs> in the the cover letter that you get in an offer. And that you need to like bold, underline, italicize that, and that <laughs> being able to speak to that outside of the core of your duties is just the likelihood that your career is going to to grow, or at the very least, remain secure, you know, within Congress. Because oftentimes, if a member loses reelection, and the member is generally respected the party that that member is a part of generally takes care of the staff or tries to help them. And so if you have a good you know, reputation or if you've been helpful, the members is likely going to be to be helpful for you. The, the example that I give is um, I knew a number of folks that worked for Senator Franken and then one day woke up and they didn't have a job. Right. Because he resigned suddenly and the governor appointed uh, then uh, Tina Smith and she kept on the staff. Now, she was under no obligation to do that, but she did because the staff had a good reputation. I think she's also a decent human being. Right. But it just points to the precarious nature uh, of the work. But I think constantly being valuable, available and willing to do what is what is needed, whether it's in your your job description or or not.
2: It kind of sounds like um, you have to have quite a a healthy dose of risk tolerance. Right. So you're you're okay with risk and maybe you even like the uncertainty like to some extent. Um, but it also kind of sounds like you can't really have a lot of boundaries in your, in your work, in your day-to-day. So like, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I wonder, it just sounds like something that is more, um, like better aligned with younger people. Maybe if you're not married, if you, I just, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm a mom with young kids and so is Marcel. Like, I can't just do like other duties as a sign. Like, if I, if my kid is sick or if I have to, you know, pick up someone from school or, you know, take someone to the doctor's, like all kinds of stuff comes up. And it's like, there's not always like I, I need that flexibility in my life. And so I'm wondering you know, you're going to get a very specific type of person. And it seems like there's not going to be a ton of diversity in in your line of work.
0: It's certainly not in stage of life diversity. You do. Mm -hmm. There are people, of course, that that have families, that have spouses, that have dogs and cats, right? The sort of (laughs) archetype. But generally speaking, the energy and the fuel of the place is single 20-somethings. And Mm -hmm. it's not just a stage of life question. It's also an income question. Right. in that if you want to own a home, want to have a family, want to have a spouse and have some money left over at the end of the month, uh, being a a fairly junior staffer is, is challenging. Now, that being said, if you work for a committee in a medium to senior level role, you work in a leadership capacity, you can make ends meet there pretty well. Um, or in a more senior-level role in a, in a personal office, but it is not just a job; it's an entire lifestyle, right? Because mm-hmm. you you serve a person, you don't serve an institution, right? Like that person is in an institution, obviously, but you are you are at the will and the grace of the individual member or senator that is that is your boss, right? So they can hire you and fire you for no reason. They can promote you or demote you for no reason, right? There's there's not a, a system that often exists in, in the corporate world, or the private sector, or even some nonprofits. So there is an incredible amount of risk. At any given day, it could all fall apart based on what the member of the sender does or doesn't doesn't do. Right? I mean, there's a lot of folks in the you know senior sender, former senior sender from California's office that are wondering what's next. Right, and that's. No fault of theirs. It's just a reality of of the industry, and so there's a lot of conversations from them taking taking place. I mean, there's a reason I waited to have my kid until after I left, right? Because I just (laughs) I just saw what it took day to day for staff that had Mm -hmm. families, and it's like kudos to them. That's that's their choice. That's just not the kind of parent that I want to be, and so that was a very intentional decision you know, to wait uh, in, until getting out of it in order to have that level of flexibility. Because right now there, there is none. You are at the will and call of the whatever the vote is going to be. And the member could need something. They could want you there. Uh, there's certainly just not a lot of flexibility there. But that's also because of the nature of how the place works, right? It's not an hours institution. It's a need-based institution mm. based on what your member needs and, and that sort of thing.
1: I like that you use that term, needs-based, because... It also makes me think of, I mean, there are a lot of organizations like that, and I think it's important for people to realize that when they're thinking about, you know, like you said, sort of what you value at different seasons of your life or at a certain time. Um, And then, yeah, what's the right time for that? Because maybe it is now and not later. Uh, And it also makes me think about...
0: Right. That's what a lot of folks do, right? For very seen that. Yeah. To one end or the other of the revolving door
1: right or yeah go to private and come back or nonprofits and then i've seen i mean in uh, campaigns too right i think it's probably pretty similar where it is very very needs based and you just got to do what you're told at any time of day or night
0: sure it's i also think it's a risky... an exaggerated version of the hill, right because there's a terminus every time right like and you know the i would say that the the hours are even more challenging and the type of work i mean oftentimes unless you're very high up, you're, you're out in the field, right? You don't have an office, right? Like you're not working at a desk necessarily. You're eating, I mean, I've done a few of these, Uh, you know, you're eating a a lot of challenging food and, and your hours are really challenging. So I I think, but that's also a way to kind of backdoor into the, into hit the hill too, that some folks can do. It's, it's a very, you know, much, I think much more challenging route in that if you've, You've earned your stripes. them, you know the member you helped get them elected or that sort of thing. You can go with them to Washington. That is how some folks do it. It's it, but it's it's much less likely or much less common. Excuse me.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. Um, in and kind of like speaking of uncertainty, <laughs> I think we'd love to talk a little bit about what's going on currently in the U.S. government, right? <laughs> because we have. <laughs> Many issues. Like yeah, sorry, jumped the gun on the lap there. <laughs> no, you well, you don't know weigh more than I do. I have to be totally honest. I really don't follow it because I try to stay in my like I mean the kids take up a lot of space and business and you know life overseas. So uh, I'm always shocked when I read something because it's kind of like, woo, it's from nowhere. It's like comet from outer space. So can you tell us a little bit, and for those who don't know, like me, um, what is currently happening with the the speaker situation, um, which I know feeds into a lot of other issues that will probably come up also.
0: Sure. So we are now on the eighth day of the U.S. House of Representatives not having a speaker. That has not happened in anyone that's alive in their lifetime. And... The reason for it was indicated back in January, which I'm sure a number of you were at least vaguely remember when it took the House a week for McCarthy to become Speaker. Um, It took 15 ballots. Normally it takes one, right? This is generally a ceremonial vote because he or she has convinced enough of their members in their conference or their caucus to when they go to the floor, the majority gets their person and you go about. Day. But what you saw in January was because the new Republican majority's margin was so small, and the contingent in the conference was large enough to deny him 218 votes. Is what you need a majority in the full House. We just kept doing this again and again and again until enough of the holdouts were convinced to vote for him, and five, I believe, yeah, it was five were convinced to vote present. So they still didn't vote for him. They just voted president, which lowers the threshold. And there were some Democratic absences. So we squeaked by. And in part of the deal to get those folks to either vote for him or vote present, he had to basically agree to gut a lot of the speaker's power in order to get people to come on board. And and one of the things that was ultimately um, now former Speaker McCarthy's undoing was retaining it's called the motion to vacate which is Mm. in in European or parliamentary systems, the easiest analogy is a vote of no confidence that can be brought that instantly brings a a snap election to retain whoever the leader is. And this had been dangled over the the, former speaker since January as this sort of existential threat that if elements of the far right or his detractors didn't like something they did, that they would pull this trigger, the vote would happen. And McCarthy, to his credit, did two things that not a lot of people expected that he would do as effectively. And the first was get a debt ceiling deal with President Biden in May and then find a, a CR to fund the government to keep the lights on. And he did both. And both of them were the predicates for his downfall in that the folks that voted to oust him believed that he overstepped his authority that he relied on Democratic votes and not Republican votes to pass these stock and measures that he didn't fight sufficiently for conservative priorities that he didn't pass all 12 appropriation bills. The reasons for them voting against him were as myriad as my fingers and toes. Right. Like there was not <laughs> just one reason of, oh, my gosh, you didn't vote on this one bill. And so we don't like you. Uh, and that was the fundamental problem is his inability to defeat the motion to vacate vote is that he couldn't just make a deal with one person that would bring enough people along and he ultimately lost eight votes, uh, which is three more than he could afford. And it fit a number of members that disliked him personally, didn't trust him, I don't know what they're doing. And then there's a couple of members that, that fit into that category. And so it, that was uh, that was last week and the house still doesn't have a speaker because, the problems that McCarthy faced are math-based, right? They're math-based, they're coalition-based. Mm-hmm. And I, it's becoming increasingly difficult for me to see how this um, circle is squared, to be completely frank. There was a lot of hullabaloo yesterday about now Majority Leader Steve Scalise securing a majority of the House Conference. Uh, the underreported part of that is he got four votes from members in the conference that can vote in conference, but can't vote on the floor because they're delegates for mm. from territory, you know, like Samoa, Virgin Islands or something like that. They can vote in a party conference, but they can't vote on the floor. So the actual vote uh, was 110 to 99, and it was a bare majority, like by one vote and uh, House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan got 99 votes. And But very quickly after that, he went to Scalise and told him that I'd be happy to nominate you, I'm going to vote for you, basically saying I can't win, and so I'm going to throw the support behind you so we can get somebody. But as of this morning, there are well over a dozen members that since this morning or late last night have vocally said they will not vote for Scalise on the floor. Mm -hmm. So again, we're back right back to where we are, where the margin is small enough and the Detractors are large enough now for you know McCarthy 2.0, right? That they, they don't like that Scalise is at the establishment. They've been in leadership for 10 years. A number of them have explicitly pointed to his cancer prognosis and diagnosis as he probably shouldn't serve as speaker while he's dealing with his health issues. Now, you can argue whether that's good or bad, but that's something that they're explicitly pointing to. And so that's why the house is paralyzed, right, is that you are in a situation where They can't or rather they don't want to work with Democrats to get a speaker. They could. Right. They could find a a consensus person that enough Dems could live with. They could come to some agreement of maybe a little bit more seats on certain committees or mm -hmm. certain rules changes that Democrats would like. But they all learned the lesson from McCarthy, or at least the perceived lesson, which is if you rely on Democratic votes, you will no longer your time in power. Will be will be limited, and this is an element where a lot of outside DC people ask me, "Why don't they just work with the Democrats to find <laughs> something that's reasonable that can right. represent, you know, a, a broad majority of the House?" Because it's, but the I think it's hard to overstate the vitriol mm. of the left from the House Republicans. The Senate's different, but in the but in the House, the the vitriol, the distrust is is just fundamental and i realize i've talked for a while a ton of time so i want to an opportunity for any other thoughts or questions here before i continue
2: well obviously this is fucked up i'll just say that
0: i think that's in the original latin yes that's it yeah yeah.
2: (laughs) it's just so it's so frustrating you know i'm this is not my first time at the rodeo like i i i've sat through you know, some, Marcel and I are the same age, like we've watched the political landscape of this country change drastically. You know, there used to be a time where, you know, reaching across the aisle and working together was something to be happy about. It's just the, the, you know, there's no, there's no pleasing a certain faction of the Republican party. And it's, um, You know it's it's concerning to me like concerning enough that you know my husband and i are like fuck we really need to like get a second passport because i like it's not what's happening now is not sustainable it's just not sustainable like if you're not going to be willing to work with colleagues to get shit done and that's kind of your fucking job right you're elected to do work not just hang out and talk about how you hate democrats which fine like hate them all you want but you still have to you know do the thing you were elected to do and i really just I, I really feel like if you're if you're running on a platform of like you know putting you know putting the brakes on our our democratic processes you should automatically be excluded just from from running you shouldn't be allowed you should not be allowed to hold office if your only goal is to stop things from happening instead of working to solve problems, you're just creating more problems. And that, that's that's just, it's fucked up. It makes me angry. That's all.
1: It does. <laughs> I mean, it makes me angry too. And I will um, add to that to say, it's interesting living abroad because nobody understands what's <laughs> happening in the US. Like, let's be honest, people always ask questions and they just have these confused looks on their faces. Like, Why is this happening? Why aren't they working together? And it's that exact point is that everyone assumes that your constituents elect you to do the right thing for your state and for the people. And so the amount of these personal vendettas and issues that come into play is what really bothers me and also concerns me quite frankly as well. Um, Because I just don't get it. It's like can we please step back? I mean, we all have to do this. Speaking of, you know, bring it back to the workplace for a second. Mm-hmm. Like, there are decisions that hard decisions that we have to make in our everyday lives and in our jobs and come to consensus on different things. Like, that's part of your job. And in that capacity, you've been entrusted and you need to be held accountable to that. Right. And so it's very disturbing to me that people at that level that are elected are not able to separate themselves and look at it as like, this is a, I mean, for lack of a better term, this is a business, like I am responsible, forget about me or what I think or what I feel if I hate this person, I need to make the business run well. Right? I mean, and that's very important business. That's like running the US government. And it's kind of it just becomes a little bit embarrassing. Sometimes (laughs) I would think that they would be embarrassed because to the world, it does look very... Insane childish and childish yeah it's yes. like a kindergarten i mean really sometimes
2: sure. i when i lived at Brad, i remember um people just asking me you know non-americans like what is going on with your government like what's your problem and i'm like look you don't like i it's frustrating because i feel like you know i can vote you know i i can you know i can cast my votes for for local politicians and for you know people in the Senate and but uh, it kind of feels like it doesn't matter and I know like that cynicism is exactly what has got us to the place where we are and I you know I kind of want to hear from you Ryan like how do we how do we incur like how do we convince the the kids like younger than me you know who are of voting age that they need to step up because right now you know you know the gen the um and the millennia like they're like pieced out they're they're just it's like it's it's too it's like too impossible and it seems like nothing nothing that nothing that anyone does matters because once you get elected it's like a fucking free-for-all
0: yeah i I have a lot of thoughts i mean the first you know because i studied originally as a congressional academic person that went, actually, maybe I'll give my hand a, a try at this rather than just writing writing about it. And I've increasingly come to the conclusion that Congress actually represents the country too well sometimes. Hmm. In that there's an element of, <laughs> if you have a legislature, it needs to moderate sort of the mobs or the public's impulses or passions. This is what the founders talked about, right? Is that they're yeah. really afraid yeah. that that the legislature would would actually be the tyrannical branch, which is hilarious given how strong the president is today. But but the Mm. idea was that they were so scared of the mob dictating the legislature and trampling people's rights. Like that was was the the concern. And I don't think we've really seen that fear play out to, to that same degree personally. But what I think you see is that the range of personalities that you get in Congress ranges from the, you know, sort of static, very reliable, you know, deal-making legislator to somebody that's more interested in going on television, right? And a lot of those people are in some of these detractors that have caused Speaker McCarthy a a lot of trouble. And so that's where, you know, sometimes I look at this and go, well, maybe Congress is doing too good of a job of representing the best and the worst of America, right? And then- Mm -hmm. Right. And then in that sense, the only alternative is changing the people that you send. However, as what we've seen over especially the last half century, the districts themselves have been written by the state legislatures often in such a way that a person is never going to lose to someone in the other party. They're going to lose to someone in their own party. And that sets up a perverse incentive structure that doesn't necessarily point to coalition building and deal making, but rather sort of uh, performance art sometimes or (laughs) pushing agendas or frames that are more more extreme. I will make a point of clarification, though, in that in the previous Congress, then Speaker Pelosi had the exact same margin. She, She could only lose four members. And working with Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and President Biden, they passed the most expansive domestic legislative set of achievements since Lyndon Johnson. Right. That includes... Medicare being able to negotiate for prescription drugs, the infrastructure law, the Chips and Science Act, the American Rescue Plan, uh, all of those, those issues would not have been possible if we didn't have extremely talented politicians running those chambers and in the White House, right? So in some ways, this is a really fascinating, almost laboratory experiment, right? You take both parties, you give them the same margin and see how they operate. And mm-hmm. You know, with the the difference is the Democrats is yeah maybe the the House Democrats at some points were disappointed that they get didn't get this policy or that policy, but particularly speaking on gun issues and climate change issues, which are first principles for Gen Z and even some Gen X voters, but particularly Gen Z voters, the Biden administration and congressional Democrats delivered last Congress. The challenge is educating voters that these things, and it takes a lot of time, often for. Enacted legislation to really be absorbed in the public consciousness, but here the, the question is: Is well, you have the same margin you know, for you know the House conference, the House Republicans. What have they delivered for their constituents? And I think there's a fair amount of legitimate criticism that there wasn't a legislative platform. There was an oversight platform, right? We need to investigate the Biden administration. We need to hold Hunter Biden accountable. We need to cut spending. Uh, That's where a lot of those frames come from, right? And that's where the shutdown conversation comes in, right? And that in the debt limit deal, fiscal Responsibility Act that then Speaker McCarthy and President Biden agreed to, not only did it raise the debt ceiling, it set uh, what's called a number of top line levels of spending for appropriations to guide FY24's annual appropriations. That's a lot of gobbledygook. What, What does it actually mean? It means setting the parameters for how much money we're going to spend in the next fiscal year. That's what the agreement was. The problem was two weeks after it was enacted, Speaker McCarthy walked back on it because the vote to pass it needed Democratic votes. The Republicans were not going to be able to pass it on their own. And so he basically had to get, you know, Minority Leader Jeffries to deliver enough Democratic votes and more Democrats than Republicans passed it. So it poisoned the well in the conference. Right. It's like you're not acting the will of the majority. You're relying on Democrats. And so he backtracked on his deal in order to satisfy them. Mm. He did the same thing in launching the impeachment inquiry. And so all his coalition management was not how do I make a deal with Democrats? It's how do I make my antagonist happy so I don't lose my job? Right. That's where the focus became. And to the point, though, I would have to push back a little bit on the votes don't matter because we would not be here if Republicans had won the expected margin, right? If they had won the expected margin that tracks generally with the president's approval rating, this is almost it's almost like clockwork. In mm-hmm. an off year election, the opposition power almost always wins the house and almost tracks perfectly the presidential approval rating. That did not happen uh, last November and that a lot of people were banking on that. And one of the primary reasons, there was two primary reasons, obviously the Dobbs decision motivated a lot of voters to vote for Democratic candidates that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise won't have, it charged up Democratic voters and beat back a lot of the the Republican uh, campaign money. The other is is the impact of the January sixth insurrection and the statements by candidates that were then running for Congress about it. Right, there are at least six or seven districts that I could list off the back of my head right now that Republicans absolutely should have won, but mm-hmm. they lost because the person that they nominated was gen six curious right if you want to use that language right i mean i'm from washington state the third district there was a long time represented by a wonderful congresswoman named jamie Herrera butler that was a great appropriator she was a very moderate republican she basically got got run out of the party because she stood up to the former president she stood up to mccarthy and the person they nominated lost to a democrat right mm-hmm. like he would not have been in a position where his Speakership would have been a battle for the very beginning, and the motion to would was succeeded if they had won these seats that they should have won based on all the structural dynamics of that midterm election. And That's so, right. in that case, the people said, or enough of them said, No, like you are not going to just win all of these seats because it's an off year. We think that a number of these candidates that you have nominated are not, they're contrary to American values, they're whatever they whatever they think. So that had a real consequence into how this new majority was going to govern. I mean, as as early as I think it was in 2021, McCarthy, like on the record, said, oh, we're going to win 60 seats. We're going to have a 30, 40 seat majority, which is similar to what they had the last time that Republicans ran the House. And so what that allowed them is these sort of antagonists, rapper-rousers, whatever verb you want to use, they were still there. And they Mm -hmm. were still doing what they were doing, but there were enough people to compensate for them. And so their job was constantly threatened, right? And so I think that the dynamic that they find themselves in is a direct result though, enough of the public, not just rejecting the incumbent president's party and saying, no, like we may not like him and we're not maybe approving of him, but we really don't like this candidate. So we're gonna send a Democrat to Washington in a red seat or at the very least a purple seat so right. that the margin that he had to come in i mean as we see it's just functionally unworkable because the coalition is not really one party anymore it's a couple different political organizations under the, the scheme of one party's name
2: so um i appreciate the pushback i'm going to translate and condense just for fun it sounds like what you're saying Yeah, your vote fucking matters, but our government is complicated and you're not always gonna see the effects of your votes immediately because lots of reasons.
0: Yep. And (laughs) we also have to remember it's designed not to work. Right. Like we have to remember it was designed by the founders who were terrified of a king Mm -hmm. or a queen or a monarch. And so they set it up to make it as as difficult as possible to to do things. Like that was a that was a choice. And so we kind of have to price that in. To how responsive we think our government is going to immediately be. That being said, since COVID, especially, the federal government's actually been pretty responsive, right? I mean, if you think about the COVID bills under the Trump administration, some of the largest pieces of legislation ever, even when accounting for inflation. I mean, they make some of them make look some of the New Deal programs look like jump change, right? So the mm-hmm. federal government, when it wants to, can be extremely responsive, like right, in the midst of an emergency. But again, going back to where we are now. Without a speaker, you can't be responsive, right? Like right. the analogy that I use with clients and colleagues or whatever is, until I have a speaker, the house is in like safe mode for a computer. Right? <laughs> it, it can it can only do like two things. It can like try to start and then turn off, right? Like that's pretty much what the house is right now. It can call for a vote for a new, an actual speaker or it can vote to adjourn. That's it. And so sure. you're thinking about everything that's going on in the Middle East right now. You're thinking about Ukraine. They literally can't even vote a resolution in the house to express support because you don't have a speaker and without a speaker you can't bring up a resolution you can't even use it's like inside baseball but some of your leaders but you can't even use a discharge petition which is like this backdoor way to get around the speaker you can't even file that without wow. a speaker, right um, and wow all this is fast forward a month from now government's going to run out of money and so it's the sort of doomsday scenario is you know mid-november comes around government shuts down There's not even somebody for the Senate and the White House to negotiate with. Right. That's the sort of doomsday scenario.
1: Fun. Yeah, there's real fun.
2: And it actually directly (laughs) impacts my family. So yeah, Yeah. more fun. Um, Obviously not fun at all. And that's it's terrifying. Um, Yeah, I wonder. So I guess part of the answer to the question I asked about. Encouraging people to engage in the democratic process is um, maybe we need to do a lot more educating at earlier ages so that people, number one, understand our government, which is incredibly complex. Um, And, you know, we learn, you know, we learn about, um, you know, the different branches of government. Like we learn we learn shit in civics, right. And in middle school and we learn it again in high school, but it doesn't really like it doesn't really hit. It doesn't, people don't get it. It's, it's very, it's, I don't know. I think there's gotta be a better way to explain to people, you know, how, how everything happens and how it, how all these little pieces fit together. So maybe that's the answer, but, but yeah, it's It's scary times.
0: It really helps, right? Like, so Mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, school programs, the ability to, to come for a summer or even a time and understand it, that, that stuff can be, can be really helpful.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, that's true. A lot of schools do take trips there and stuff. My grade was never allowed to because there was a lot of bad kids, but a lot of people I know <laughs> were allowed to go to DC and experience the process. So I think you're right. I think, or even just meeting, right, with somebody who is very knowledgeable like you or somebody um, working on the Hill just to talk it through and ask their questions. And and then, you know, the then there will be even like people that not even just speaking about participating in the process by voting, but it would probably inspire a lot of kids to run themselves one day, right, and take that career path. Certainly.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've seen an explosion of that post-2017, right? The, the run mm-hmm. for something effort, right? Like, you know, there's been a lot of efforts to, to do that as well. The other thing that I always like to stir in is that I think a lot of times as Americans, we think that Right now, like the country's going to hell or everything's terrible, but it was really great at some point in the past, <laughs> right? Like right. I, I know oftentimes a lot of groups that have been on the wrong end of the majority stick like don't hold that belief, but I think a, a lot of Americans do. Like they think that like oh my gosh we could just go back to you know the post World War II era, then everything would be fine, right? And then we were you know I, I think that not only this is the civics education component that you're talking about, but I think it's also a realistic examination and learning about history and then be able to put what we're experiencing in context to understand how upset I should be about it, what are the possible solutions how much impact could this have? is this, is this a you know flash in the pan or is this you know pretty systemic right I mean there have been instances in the past where speakers um, have died right and have thrown the Congress into disarray. No one's ever been vacated before that's new. But you have had instances <laughs> before where certain elements of certain parties hijack the agenda in the eyes of some, uh, in the eyes of others. They're fighting for for their beliefs. I mean, you used to, you used to have people in, in Congress that didn't believe that certain people had the right to vote, right? Or, you know, the example I always use is, you know, there were thousands of Americans that rallied in Madison Square Garden for America First with Charles Lindbergh right, on the eve of the Second World War, right, when horrible atrocities were taking place like that happened in America, right? So even then, under like, probably one of the most unifying American experiences, the response to the Second World War, you had a lot of people that were not on board, right? And so that's where that always helps me put some of the things that really concern me in the general populace, and who gets elected or whatever, kind of in some context, right? Is like, you can't just be nostalgic around these great moments. You have to think about that even in the midst of that, there were people that voted, uh, you know, against certain, you know, arms deals for countries that needed to be able to defend themselves. Right. So I think being able to look at that and I think a little bit more balanced perspective, at least kept me sane, especially as a, you know, a Hill Democrat during the you know, four years of Trump, I read a lot of history books right, in order to, to you know, to say sane or be able to put it in, in some context.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And, um, I'm glad you're reminding people because and there's a lot of people, especially older people, right? Who are just watching the news all the time and doing exactly what you say. So I think that's super important. Yeah. Apparently.
0: The other thing, the other thing too, is often I would encourage people just to watch C SPAN, right? Like C SPAN's act- great. Actually watch it. Like
2: I love C SPAN.
0: <laughs> arguably it's most it's most transparent, open version that has it has ever been.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: You can watch everything with the exception of a closed committee hearing with like the intelligence committee right like that makes right. sense but like you can watch the floor debate you can watch every committee you can actually see how government works and i find that most of the time watch the committee is not necessarily the floor mm-hmm. the floor can be very performative especially in the house it can be very in the Senate too, but it can be very performative the actual business is done on the committee level and so understanding how well people work with each other, like you can every, anybody can watch that, right? It's mm-hmm. not this this great you know secret. And I think that can help being able to figure out kind of who are the good good guys and who are the good women, right? Or whatever frame that you want to use, like who are some of the good people that, you know, regardless of their party affiliation, are looking to keep the government open, that are looking to find a bipartisan solution. Like those people do exist, right? I know many of them, like they are out there, but they very rarely get the headline in the copy because right. they're not newsy, right? And yeah, so part of right. that is an incentive structure that I think as consumers and as people that we cha- that consume news, we need to help force the model to change that what we want content is from people that are actually delivering, not just those that are making a spectacle, right? We can't just blame the media on that. The media is a business. It's responding to what consumers want. And so I think part of it is we need to change you know what we want out of that which is why i always encourage people to buy a subscription to news a newspaper right mm-hmm. somebody that isn't on television that has somebody up on the hill that's getting people on the record that's covering this stuff like the people have so much power to influence not only the media coverage and the american government but often we throw our hands up and say we have no power uh which i think plays into the hands of folks that kind of want to tear it down and so i think, sure. I think we to take some responsibility on our own for these little ways that we can make a difference
2: definitely Thank no you. I think yeah. those are great great points and I I the idea of encouraging my kids to watch more TV is weird but um I don't know <laughs> if it's, right TV. Right. TV. it's for educational TV <laughs> right 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 I also yeah. think Marcel we should um we should come out with a line of t-shirts that says negotiating is sexy and <laughs> get people interested in um you know actually getting getting the job done instead of you know raising your fist and yelling a bunch of crap that gets you on Twitter. I don't, whatever it's called now.
1: I like that. No, I like that. We should explore that. And yeah. And I also <laughs> think our next episode should be how to change the U S media. Cause that's another thing that, that I like to complain about. Um, yeah. So Ryan, this has been fantastic. I mean, I think you just educate a lot more people <laughs> than you know. <laughs> Um, I'm excited well, for people. I'm happy
0: to help. I mean, I've been doing this for a while. I've been on both sides of the chamber. And now I'm in the private sector. And like, there is reason to be hopeful, right? Like, you know, I think DC is a spectacle right now, but it often is. But there, there's reason to be hopeful, right? I think in just allowing me to put on my personal hat for two seconds, right? Like the defining conflict of our era right now is in Eastern Ukraine, right? And right now, both Republicans and Democrats, time again, have come together to spend billions of dollars to support a country that most Americans couldn't even find on a map or don't even know someone that's Ukrainian because they understand the stakes of that battle. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that that gives me some hope is that there are some issues still that cross that are above party lines that we want to deliver that no American is seeing a direct benefit from. But it's because our legislators understand the ultimate impact for democracy, for the U.S. power projection, stability of the economy, all of that. And I think that would be something I want to leave your listeners with, is that that is an issue that almost no American directly benefits from, but is something that is critical for the U.S. to do in order to save, stave off a third world war. And Congress has repeatedly delivered. Uh, what the administration wanted. The question is, is when they can do it again.
1: Thank you. That does give me a lot of hope personally. So I'm sure other people will feel the same way. Definitely.
0: Well, thank you for having me. It's been delightful talking with you both. Yeah. Same no. here. Thank, thank you. you.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And um, I guess we can't. Normally, we would say, you know, where can you give us information, where people can find you? But it sounds like that's kind of not your jam. I don't know if Well, you I'm, do, uh... I'm, on,
0: I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> you can search for me on my page at the firm. i be happy that folks want to want to talk more. This is what I do for a living. So if I can be helpful, just search me out that way. Ryan J on LinkedIn. There I am. <laughs>
2: okay. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Ryan. And awesome. um, thank you both. see you all next time. Bye. The Career Bitches are eternally grateful to our producer Joe Tropea at Harry Covert Films based in beautiful Baltimore City for his bullshit-free feedback and constant support. We would also like to thank Micro Kingdom for their musical genius and providing our theme music. You can check out more of their extra cognitive spiritual magnetism at microkingdom.com. A new episode of Career Bitches drops every Monday morning to start your work week. And you can listen to us bitch on demand on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you find your podcasts.